Morning, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, contains adult content. Harry and others use profanity, adult language, and discuss adult topics, and so shall we. One more warning, this podcast may contain spoilers. I must stress this for this chapter and the entire podcast, so please proceed with extreme caution. Nothing? Nothing. It's what you're going to do. I can't work with you anymore, man. You know, I know we got this thing going on with Irving, but that's it. That's the end. After this is over, you go to Pounds and tell him you want to transfer out of Hollywood. But there aren't any openings in Homicide anywhere else. I looked at the boards. You know how rare they come up. I didn't say anything about homicides. I just want you to go and ask for a transfer. You ask for the first thing open, understand? I don't care if you end up on autos in 77. You take the first thing you can get. Now he looked at Edgar, whose mouth was slightly open, and said, that's the price you pay. But homicide is what I do. You know that. This is where it's at. It's not where you're at anymore. This isn't negotiable. Unless you take your chances with IED. But either you go to pounds or I go to them. I can't work with you anymore, man. That's it. He looked back at the band. Edgar was silent. And after a few moments, Bosch told him to leave. You go first. I can't walk with you back to Parker. Edgar stood up and hovered near the table for a few moments before saying, Someday, you're going to need all the friends you can get. That's the day you'll remember doing this to me. Without looking back at him, Bosch said, I know. Hello, and welcome to the Thin Blue Line Podcast. I'm Philip Parker, a retired detective with over 29 years of law enforcement experience. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to rate us five stars or better. Please follow us on Twitter at the Thin Blue Line Pod or our Facebook and Instagram pages, which are set up just for our fans. Also, join us at www.thethinbluelinepod.com for more investigative content, where you'll find more detailed experience concerning Harry Bosch and Michael Connolly. Now all that's out the way, it's time to get back to work and probe deep into chapters 17 through 20 of The Concrete Blonde. Last time on The Thin Blue Line Podcast, we explore how Resolution shaped chapters 13 through 16 of The Concrete Blonde. And today, we will take a deep dive into chapters 17 through 20. As always, there's the prerequisite spoiler alert. It's my intention to stay away from spoilers, but sometimes shit happens. So please proceed with extreme caution. And now, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. It's time to open up the murder book and turn the page to the chronological record 
so we can do an investigative summary on the information gathered thus far in this chapter. Judge Gies, Belk, Bosch, and Chandler retire to the judge's chambers. Belk objects to the line of questioning Chandler is taking, and both Belk and Harry explain by answering her questions they would give away that they know a second killer exists, tipping him off. Bosch also asks what would happen if he refused to testify, and Keyes tells him he would be held in contempt and placed under arrest. Harry gets on the stand, and Chandler asks again, did the killing stop with the death of Norman Church? Harry tries to minimize the damage, but answers her questions concerning the follower. While on the stand, Bosch noticed that Sylvia was in attendance. Chandler also extracts from Bosch that he felt that Church was a monster that got what he deserved. After court, Bosch goes to add advice and follow up with Ray Moore concerning the previous phone call. Ray tells Harry that it occurred to him that there might be another killer at work. Ray explains his theory, telling Bosch about a tip concerning a porn star that may have been a victim of the follower. Shortly thereafter, Harry is summoned to a meeting by Assistant Chief Irving and other detectives concerning the follower. Harry explains the reasons that led him to the conclusion another man was involved. Irving asks Harry who he thinks is most likely a suspect. After conferring with investigative files, Bosch tells Irving that Ray Moore could be a possible suspect. Assistant Chief Irving concludes the meeting, but asks Bosch to stay behind. After everyone leaves, Irving informs Bosch that it was he, the reporting officer, who found and discovered Bosch's mother's body. Bosch leaves the building, but is stunned by Irving's revelations. He sees Edgar a block and a half ahead and assumes Edgar is heading to the favorite watering hole and begins to follow. But Edgar does not stop at either of the two usual places and instead meets with Chandler at a bar that is frequented by lawyers. Harry waits till Edgar leaves and confronts him as the leak concerning the dollmaker slash follower investigation. Bosch gives Edgar an ultimatum to leave Hollywood Station or Bosch would go to IED concerning revealing sensitive investigative information. As Bosch is heading back to Parker Center, Brimmer offers Harry a ride. En route, Brimmer asks Bosch, would Bosch hold a grudge against him for reporting the events disclosed during today's proceedings? Bosch assures Brimmer that he would not hold any grudges. Upon arrival to Parker Center, Brimmer relays that neither Edgar or Pounds is his source of information and opines that Bosch would never guess who his source was. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's lift up the yellow tape and examine the clues. For the defining theme for chapters 17 through 20 is breaking someone's trust. It's like crumpling up a perfect piece of paper. You can smooth it over 
but it's never going to be the same again. Hello, and welcome back to the Thin Blue Line podcast. Harry Bosch. And we start off chapter 17 with everyone going back into the judges' chambers. And again, Conley does a great job because this happens a lot of the times. And it was kind of funny, again, when you watch television, it's usually very formal. But if you've been an officer for a while and you know the court, i.e. the judge, it, behind closed doors, it's extremely informal in a certain sense. And again, before, you know, it was taboo to smoke cigarettes in a government building. That scene Conley describes happened all the time. Now, I'm not a smoker, but uh, I'll give you a case in point. When the uh, attorneys had objected and the judge wanted to have a meeting behind closed doors in his chambers, everyone, like, like, the, uh, like Conley had wrote here, the court um, reporter, the lawyers, everyone would get in there and the judge would take off his robe and he or she would kick their feet up. And again, if they would smoke, they would uh, light a cigarette and throw the ashtray in the middle of everyone and everyone lit up. And, but that representation of what Conley did there was a true depiction of sometimes how informal, but still formal, because as you see here, Bell got his ass chewed out when he tried to intimidate the uh, judge. Well, speaking about intimidating judge, let's back up a little bit. You know, that when we started out the Concrete Blonde episodes, I thought Michael Connolly was having Belt represent some bigger philosophy when it comes to uh, the government attorneys. But, you know, I, I, I think I said last podcast, fucking Belt is just getting on my nerve because here again, Harry tries to tell him something. He doesn't want to listen. And then they go back into judges' chambers and he's spouting off as though, oh, he's informed or he's part of the decision-making. And if he had just done what Harry asked him to do, he would be in a much better position to ask the judge for a favor. And I think the favor here was a continuance. But, you know, this asshole jumps in and acts like he's in a loop when it comes to the whole law enforcement investigation. (laughs) Again, Conley does a great job here, and, and this happens all the time. You know, I, I get in court, the judge is very reserved, very by the book, blah, 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 right? But again, I love this portion in the book because this happens all the time. Again, from the book, Miss Penny, the judge watched the court reporter as she lift her fingers from the keys. Mr. Belk, you're fucked. Excuse my language, ladies. He's going to answer that question. And the one after that, and the one after that, Okay, we're back on. <laughs> Again, uh, most people in law enforcement, we have potty mouths. Because, you know, I guess that's just simple and childish way to express some of the, and it's a quick, fast way to express some of the grotesque and horrible things we see. So we revert, revert to a quick, at least I did, a quick and easy way to express how bad things are. And the fact, instead of judge going through this whole long dissertation about, you know, um, Harry answering this question, answering this question, he just looks over at Belk and says, you're fucked. (laughs) This is perfect. You know, that's actually, that happens. You know, again, judges sometimes have the word, I mean, I've been on the, the other side of being reamed out from a judge. Again, when you're, when you're young, you make stupid mistakes. 
And that's why I, as I told you in prior podcasts, I tried to investigate cases not to go to court because I wanted to be so airtight, so much evidence that it would have a crazy person. Well, not a crazy person, but a person would have to think long and hard to go to trial because I tried to come with clear and convincing evidence that this person did the crime. That belief was forged from getting my ass handed to me on the stand. <laughs> you know, from a defense attorney just reaming into me to the judge giving me the, the crazy looks from the juries looking at me, rolling their eyes, from feeling as small as an ant on the stand and feeling so stupid. Those are the things that a young investigator, and again, I, I'm pretty sure any detective worth this saw, any officer, any law enforcement person who testifies a lot has this experience where you get on the stand, your shit wasn't tight, and you got exposed. And so you say, you know what? Instead of going, instead of being mad, you go inward and you say, you know what? Hey, that was not, that's not going to happen again. And so you make sure you cross every T dot every I. So when you do go back to court, your shit's right. And again, here we go again, again, the informality, but the authority that the judge throws down on Belk here is Conley, to me, at his best when it comes to pulling back the veil of what happens in, in um, court. And again, federal court is different. I worked in uh, federal court and state and local courts, and federal court is totally different. And this is one of the things that the judge points out here from the book. You're also trying to intimidate me, and that's one thing I do not take. I'm no county judge that needs your nod every time an election comes around. I'm appointed for life. We're off here. As Penny stopped typing. Bosch almost didn't want to look at Belk to see the slaughter. The deputy city's attorney's head was bowed, and he assumed the posture of the doom. The back of his neck was turned up, ready to receive the axe. So my advice here is that you get your fat ass out there and start working on how the hell you're going to salvage this on redirect. Because in five minutes, Detective Bosch here is going to answer that question. Or he's going to be handing his gun, his badge, and his belt over to the Marshal Service and federal lockup. We're back on. Hearing adjourned. <laughs> Again, the judge now is, is, is weighing in on Belk's laziness. Because, again, he left Harry exposed. And then we also see how Bosch is still fighting to find out who the hell is Chandler's source of information. You know, because he goes to her doing a smoke break and says, you know, something to the effect of, when I find out who your source is, I'm going to burn him to the ground. And she comes back over the top. Not if your ash is first. Yeah, you got love, honey Chandler. We see Sylvia showed up to court, and I'm glad Sylvia showed up to court. And it's important, even though I think Harry didn't, I said in the last podcast that Harry did not seem not to trust Sylvia could handle the barrage of insults and innuendos that he got when he was on the stand. But as you see, she gives him a little smile. And I honestly, if I saw that, that would give me some sense of encouragement. And, you know, we got Chandler finally getting Bosch to lose his temper. Again, Michael Conley writes that as the words were said, Bosch flinched and closed his eyes. Even Bosch, seasoned detective, 
who testified thousands of times. He says it here. You know, the words came tumbling out of his mouth and afterwards he flinched, you know, concerning calling um, Norman Church a monster. And I, that's happened to me. You know, you, you say something, and you know, you're like, oh, shit. That wasn't what I was supposed to say, but it just came tumbling out. Again, you know, someone had told me a long time ago that words are like a bullet. Once you pull that trigger, you can't put it back in the chamber. And again, Michael Connolly describes after Chandler finishes with Bosch, he's walking back to the uh, defense table. And again, after I fucked up on the stand and you had to walk back either from the, uh, the stand back to the witness room or back to, to the prosecutor table, no matter table. But that is like dead man walking. <laughs> you know, That's the longest walk because you feel every, especially when you fucked up. Now, when you did good, my, I had a bounce in my step and I looked over at the defense table like, yeah. But when you fucked up, it's like dead man walking. You know, last rites has been administered and you're walking back from the stand. And again, Michael Conley does a great job because it feels like it's a mile. Um, and every, again, everything slows down. And then you, you try not to look at the, def, um, the, the, the juror's box, but you, know, you kind of cut your eyes over there and you can tell when you fucked up, they got that look on their face like, mm, mm, mm. Going back to Sylvia, you, know, you see how she is a police officer's wife. I said that in the Black, um, the black Echo. And now we again see how the stuff she's made of. Because, again, from the book, I, uh, uh, how long were you here? For most of it, I'm glad I came. I know it was rough, but I saw the goodness of what you are come through all the harshness of some things you have to do. That line right there just bolsters my standing of how Sylvia is a, a great police officer's wife. Because she said, I see what's going on. I know what they're trying to do to you, but I know your heart. And I know what you uh, sacrifice to get the job done. And they might not ever see it, but trust me, you're a good person. But, you know, also Sylvia hits them with, uh, you know, she warns Harry about important, you know, that she had to find out in court about his past and who wouldn't say, well, wait a minute, damn Harry, why didn't you never tell me that your mother was murdered? I mean, don't you think it's kind of important? And I felt sorry for, for Harry because Harry then comes back and he's in emotional overload and he starts stammering and stuttering. Like, I just can't do this right now. Not them, not you. We'll talk about it. I promise. And I kind of felt sorry. I really felt sorry for him. But then again, what does the Sylvia, the police officer wife, do? She said, now, 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 calm down. We'll talk about this later. And reassures him. She loves him. She cares for him. But she's just going to go back to work. Again, all the trademarks of a good law enforcement significant other. You know, patient, understanding, but firm. You know, <laughs> Believe me, I've tried on many occasions to get away with stuff that my, my wife would not let me get away with. But there's a time and place for everything. And she understands he's on the job. He's going to get back. We're going to, we will come back to this conversation, but just not now. So now we have Harry going after court, going to see uh, Ray Moore and using the pretense of Moore's previous phone call concerning some information or another tip or some information he had that he wanted to give to Bosch. Now, I bring everyone back to, remember I always told you that I think Michael Connelly's writing 
It's kind of like a, a python, slow, methodical to wrap you up. Now, remember, the last two books, The Black Echo and The Black Ice, Michael Connolly has conditioned us not to look past the supposedly good guys, like Special Agent Rourke in The Black Echo and Detective Moore in The Black Ice. So, you know, he's already laid the foundation that, hey, I'm not one above writing about, you know, bad law enforcement, but he's conditioned us to think that the bad guy could be a law enforcement officer. So, you know, you start, I started feeling the tentacles of, not the tentacles, the scales of the snake wrapping around me. Ray tells Bosch, you know, some of his theories about, hey, the follower has interest in porn stars. And, you know, he gives, you know, about the tip, you know, he had information about a tip about a guy who was a, as they call him, a Tom, a peeping Tom. And that, that could possibly be the, um, the follower. And Bosch plays along with Ray. Remember, he has to play it close to the vest because, again, this is just a hunch of his. He, Ray could be just an innocent guy, a creepy guy, but innocent all, all, the, um, all the less. And, you know, Bosch asks him, you know, dude, why are you staying this so long? How do you stay in this, this, um, this field so long? And, you know, let me give you some, again, some information about those type of investigations or those type of uh, disciplines in law enforcement when it comes to, because uh, that's a, a victim crime too. You know, here these women are, or nowadays these people are selling themselves for this type of industry, you know, pornography, prostitution, whatever. And, you know, our department required you to go to, or used to, require you to go through certain psych evals after a certain amount of time being in this particular field because they can see, they saw the damage that it caused when it comes to personal or interpersonal relationship with your coworkers and your family. You know, especially the, um, I had an old partner who used to work uh, child exploitation cases. And I had some conversation with him after working. He just, he left my, my division, not the cog division. And I, I, I didn't see him for maybe 18 months. And I saw him, you know, at the FOP. And he looked like he aged five years. And I was talking to him like, dude, what the hell's going on? And he's like, dude, this, these type of, you know, the images you see and how evil people are, it just weighs on you. And I think at that time, I think after that, he left that because, again, that particular discipline, the law enforcement, does take a toll on the criminal investigator. And even this, Moore said that, hey, most people after a year want to punch the ticket and get the hell out of here. Because, you know, you start to see just how debasing these type of investigations could be when it comes to the target of investigations. What's the next part? Of the concrete blonde, I think is some to this point, some of Michael Connolly's best writing. And what he also gives you a glimpse of how things supposed to be. Well, Bosch is ordered to a meeting with Chief Irving, and then we get a glimpse of Lieutenant Rollenberger, and he's described as a climber. And also, too, Connolly then talks about um, Rollenberger is the head of RHD. Now, RHD is the cream of the crop where everyone wants to go to. Robbery Homicide Division. Every detective worth their salt wants to go to that division because, one, they take, they take the biggest, best, 
most difficult cases. Again, in my unit, my unit was the same way. Every investigator who wanted to do any, because my, my, my division was kind of like RHD, just take out the homicide. But we did work with homicide, but everything, the biggest, baddest cases came through my division. And we had commanders just like Rollenberger, who avoided, like, like uh, Michael Connolly said, avoided controversy like a panhandler on the street. Didn't want to see it. Don't talk about it. And that type of commander you can't trust. Now, elite units need a commander who, who isn't scared, who's not a climber, who will back the troops. Because if you, and, and guess what? On the, when you have that, those people under your command will make you look good. Anytime in my, in my experience with my old unit, when any chief needed a crime to be solved, anything that was unique, special, nuanced, whatever, they came to my unit. And they were like, the, every chief worth their salt would say, hey, those guys right there, they do a phenomenal job. I want them on this case. Take it to them. They will solve it for me. And that's what RHD is here. But again, Kali lets us know that morale's low. And reason morale is low because you can't do your job effectively if your commanding officer is always worried about climbing up the ladder. Again, if you're a climber, don't go to elite units. Go somewhere safe. One of the things that, again, Conley gets you guys to see here is you see how the true task force works. Now, I've, always, I've been working on task forces for like 20 plus years. And you see how a task force is supposed to work. Again, Irving gives his speech and he, start for, he starts off by saying, one, Harry, what's going on? Two, what do you think? Three, what do you know? And then four, then we have a plan of action right there. Okay, so let's break that down. I'm going to slow down. Slow down here. Chief Irving says in front of the climber, Lieutenant Rollenberg, he's teaching here. Hey, Harry, what's going on? Two, what do you think? Three, what do you know? Four, and then we, not me, we would then come up with a plan from there. That right there is a true sign of a commander who knows what the fuck he's doing. And that's what Rollenberg does not represent. And in law enforcement, we need to get back to that right there. That's what the chiefs or commanders need to do. Now, he's a chief. He shouldn't be running this like this. But he, he knows who Rollenberg is. He knows the type of guy who Rollenberg is. And again, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. So he has to take, take control of this investigation right now. Because he says it here, you know, this is a great, this is possibly a, a biggest embarrassment of the LAPD. So we need to jump on it right now. And so before Harry answers it, Sheehan jumps in and asks a question. And that right there, because Harry trusts Sheehan, Harry trusts Sheehan, and that gives Harry the nod like, hey, he believes the chief is playing this on up and up. And we see the lack of experience Lieutenant Rollenberger has, because I love the whole idea when he, su he suggested that Rollenberger suggests that they call FBI's behavioral science lab. <laughs> and everyone looked at him like, what the fuck are you talking about? Call FBI. Again, the enmity that exists with, between state and locals and the feds. And I guess in the third book, and again, 
I can't wait to be able to interview Michael Connolly to find out what example or what were the multiple examples for him for the third book to begin to show the enmity between state and locals and the feds. And, you know, we see how good Irving is because Irving says to Bosch, who is your suspect? <laughs> Bosch says to himself, he knows. How the hell does he know? He knows because he's a good commander and he recognizes his talent. And he's been working with you for the last 12 years, 12 plus years. And he knows that you have been on this case from the very beginning. And you don't walk, you can walk and chew gum and you already have a suspect. And he knows you. Chief Irving knows you, Harry. Chief Irving just owns this particular portion of the concrete blonde. Because he also says to Harry, because Harry's reluctant. Remember, Harry does not want to put out there that he suspects Ray Moore. But the chief says, well, did you learn your lessons already? What, what did Chandler call you, a cowboy? And he also says to Harry, we can't have you out here doing this on your own. So who's your hunch? What's, what's your hunch? Every investigation starts with a hunch. Again, listeners, that's true. Conley is, again, pulling back the, the, the curtain so you can see behind us investigators. It starts with a hunch. It could be nothing. It is nothing. It's, I can't give you science to it. Experience, conditions on the ground, someone's looking at face, the sweating, whatever it is. Most investigations start with a hunch. And now you see Harry here also being reluctant to work with IED. In my department, to work in IED is a voluntary position. They can't make you go to IED to work. But on times, because of my different type of expertise, IED would come to me and, for lack of a better term, deputize me to work with them on a case. And I felt so uncomfortable. And I actually interviewed you know, in a in an off manner way, I kind of interviewed them before I agreed to help. Like, okay, what are you, what are you working on? Because I didn't want to work on a case where a guy was alleged to um, be drinking on duty or alleged to be using his law enforcement car to be going to the uh, movies or something like that. Again, I'm not taking away from that. Those are worthwhile investigations. And if it's against the policies and procedures of the department that you work on, then those type of things need to be done. But I just didn't want to do it. I, I me personally, I could not do it. But they came to me on a, on a case where a guy, I mean, it, it, the allegations were just ugh, terrible. And I, I can't get into the, the, the specifics of the investigation, but let's just say it was terrible. And it led to us getting search warrants to the guy's house. And boy, I, I felt so bad because, you know, you go through the house and you go in there, you see all the guys, police paraphernalia, his uniform, his wife comes home and it was just ugly. It was just an ugly scene. And again, I, my hat's off to the guys. And again, I think my brother and I talked about it in the Black Echo when we first got introduced to the whole ID thing. And again, any cop will say it. We're not saying ID provides a very vital function of any department. And I honestly believe that I just, just can't do it. I just didn't want to do it. So, but I just felt so wrong. Now I had to be there. I did my job. I did it well. And actually at the end of the day, it was a worthwhile investigation. But 
I get Harry's reluctance here. Even Irvin says, "But well, you don't want to bring the, you know, the, the hounds on, on a cop. Harry, we're talking about investigating cops because what you just said, it was someone who is close to the investigation who, had, who could possibly be the follower. So we're talking about cops and others. And yeah, I, I honestly believe so far in the three books, so far, the Concrete Blonde is setting the bar high when it comes to Conley and his revealing cop life. And again, from the book, he says, there's always this giddiness that detectives felt when they received their marching orders and they're about to go into the hunt. That is so true because we all, you know, after the commander, especially now, as I already said, Irving is doing everything above board. And she has already vouched to that. Harry laid out the investigation. Irving even gave Bosch some time to review some files before he revealed who he thought could be the possible follower. But that line that, that detectives got this giddiness, you know, the marching orders, all right, go out there and get, you know, go out there and get them. That is so true. And, you know, to bring this point home of the type of commander that Irving is, is this line right here. Again, I hope there's some command staff who are listening to this podcast. And if you listen to this podcast, if you can go back to the Concrete Blonde and find this line from the book, my fort is neither detective work or psychologist, but something tells me that whoever the follower is, he's feeling the pressure. Irving admits in front of everybody, he says, my fort is not invest, um, being a detective. <laughs> I can tell you that line is few and far between for a commander to say, because of course they're a commander, they think they know it all. But see, Irving knows his talent. And he's going to call on his talent to do their job. Do your job. Just tell me what you need to do your job, but do your job. And that right there is the best line that I thought so far in the Concrete Blonde. Well, it's a couple of them, but that one stood out to me a lot. One of the things that Irving does, again, is show that this particular portion, these particular chapters of the Concrete Blonde, Irving owned them. He owned them. Because, again, from the book, the potential for embarrassment to the department on this case is huge. But I don't want anyone holding back. Let the stones fall as they will. Okay, then everyone has their assignments. Boom. First, he says that his fort is not to be an investigator or a psychologist. But he also says, don't hold back. Do your job. I got the rest. And that right there, I love it. Okay, chief, you got it. I'm, I'm going to go out here and do what I got to do. You said it in front of all these people. Do you, you know, let the chips fall as they may, or as he said, let the stones fall as they will. And you're talking about your marching orders and you read, you get revved up. A chief like Irving tells you that, hell, I'm ready to go back. Um, <laughs> as you can tell, I'm fired up myself. And I'm fired up. Let me say this. I'm fired up because I got that early on in my investigation, my investigative career. When I first, what made me want to, become a detective and then stay a detective because that right there, those type of marching orders from command staff, it's so sad to see nowadays. But back when I first started out, those, that was the norm. The commander's like, I'm not a detective. You, that's what we pay you the big bucks for. Go out there and detect. Do your thing. <laughs> Just tell me what you need to do your thing. I got the rest. That was normal for me. And then, but in the latter part of my career, 
most commanders hated that about me. They hated the fact that I required them to back me up. I required them to give me the tools to do the job because they were like Rollenberg. They were climbers. And they didn't want the chips to fall as they may because, my God, it might fall where they had to make a command decision and they might jeopardize their, you know, going up the ladder. And again, that goes back to something I just said earlier. Elite units can't have climbers. You just can't have climbers. You got to have somebody who are, and again, it's not young or old. I mean, I met some young commanders who like, eh. And this one commander, he, he always said in open meetings, oh, what are they going to do? Bust me back to be a captain? Okay. Eh. You know, <laughs> so that type of guy, you're like, okay, I'm going to go work for this guy because he's not, not, he doesn't really care about the politics behind it. He just wants the, the, the investigation to be solved. And you got to respect a commander like that. So after the meeting, Irving dismissed everyone except for Bosch. So when everyone leaves, Michael Conley then just puts a cherry on the top when it concerns Irving in this particular chapter. Because now Irving then turns to Bosch and they had this conversation. Even what Bosch said, it felt weird because, again, he's always seen Irving as, a, as, as his nemesis, someone who's always trying to bring him into the fold. And that's just not Harry. He's not the being in the fold type of guy. But we see Irving understanding Bosch's plight. Again, from the book. Don't get me started on that either. I mean, what's this city doing? The city attorney is nothing but a school, a law school for trial lawyers, and the taxpayers are paying the tuitions. They get some greenhorn, I mean, uh, some preppy, who doesn't know the first thing about trial law. They learn from their mistakes they make in court when it counts for us. And when they finally get good and know what the hell's going on, they quit. And then they are the lawyers that are suing us. Boy. Again, that, that's, that, that's, that surmises what Jackie was saying when I interviewed her about the civil attorney in her case. You got this feeling that, what the hell is the city doing? Well, at least Harry got them to go to trial. Most of the time, the city settles. And they settle when this is just not worth it. What they, under, they don't understand is that you embolden some people to just file false claims. again. I'm not trying to get on my soapbox, but that soapbox, but that happens. If the city doesn't push back on false testimony, then that just encourages other people to sue the city. And then you have you have police officers who say, "Why should I care?" Because they're going to I can bring in video evidence that the person is lying, and you one don't adjudicate them or, or, or charge them for lying. Now again, if a police officer does something wrong, and you know, I think I'm going to stop saying it because I think you guys know what I mean. I do not and will not back someone doing some criminal activity. But in the same token, it's going to be hard for you to, for society to get, good pe- to get good people to fill the police ranks for things like this happening. Because you will get sued doing your job. And if you did something wrong, then there's a mechanism for addressing that. But if you didn't do anything wrong, there should be also a mechanism for addressing that. Well, you know, also to Irving, we went on this ramble. Even Bosch said, oh boy, he's like rambling. What the hell's going on? Again, from the book, you know, Bosch, it only takes a half an hour meeting with Lieutenant Rollenberg in the room for me 
to want to take a good look at myself and the department where it's headed. He's not the LAPD I joined or you joined. He's a good manager, yes, and so am I. At least I think so. But we can't forget we're cops. And then we have Irving revealing to Harry that he's the one who found Harry's mom behind that in the alley when he was just a regular, regular beat cop. And even Harry said he knew that someday he would meet somebody who possibly knew his mother. But, but Harry recognizes how small a world that they are in, that now his one nemesis is also the guy who found his mother. Depart from the question of the day. I did not put out a question of the day because Michael Connolly wrote something here back in 1994 that's still relevant to today in 2019. So I want to give this particular paragraph in The Concrete Blonde is just due. So please be patient with me from the book. It's the same old story that every cop knows. The citizens want their police to protect them to keep the plague from their eyes, from their doors. But those same John Q's are the first to stare wide-eyed and point the finger of outrage when they see up close exactly what the jobs they given the cops entailed. Bosch was no hardliner. He didn't condone the actions taken by the police in Andre Galton's and the Rodney King cases. But he understood their actions and knew his own actions ultimately shared a common root. Through political opportunism and ineptitude, the city had allowed the department to languish for years as an understaffed, under-equipped paramilitary organization. Infested with political bacteria itself, the department was top-heavy with managers, while the ranks below were so thin that the dog soldiers on the street rarely had time and inclination to step out of their protective machines, their cars, to beat the people they serve, they only ventured out to deal with the dirt bags. And consequently, Bosch knew, it had created a police culture in which everyone not in blue was seen as a dirt bag and which was treated as such. Everybody. You ended up with your Andre Galtons and your Rodney Kings. You ended up with a riot that the dog soldiers couldn't control. Okay, as we come back from break, I'm going to peel back the veil on some of the, my process for getting ready for the Thin Blue Line. And one of the things how I get ready for the Thin Blue Line podcast, getting ready for this, these particular episodes, is I only read, now, like I said before, I've read all their books, all um, Michael Conley books. And what I do is when I go back over, especially these earlier ones, I don't read, but so far, I just read the three, excuse me, the three to four chapters in which I'm going to talk about. And so the reason I do that, because I want my reactions and my emotions to be authentic and not to be persuaded by the ending. Now, I do know overall broad ending, like in the what happened in the Black Echo and the broad ending that happened in the, the Black Ice. But some of the little nuances still capture me to the day. And that's why I watch, the, I read the different forms and different blogs. Everyone says I read the book 
again or I read it again and I read it again because it's still sometimes Michael Conley catches you by surprise. Now, I say all that as a preamble for what comes next. What comes next is Harry's walking. He gets out of the meeting with Irving and he's walking down the street and he, see, he sees Edgar. And he follows Edgar, thinking Edgar's, you know, innocently, he's going to get something to drink. I'm just going to the bars because Sheehan, Opo, and all the rest of them, we all are going to kick back some before, you know, uh, to wait the rush hour out. And so what happens? He, Edgar passes two of the most famous bars and goes into a bar in which Harry sees Edgar sitting with Chandler. Boy, did I get hit between the eyes. Remember? What did I say last podcast? I said, give me a guy like Edgar <laughs> anytime. I think something like that. Give me a partner like Edgar. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, don't I feel stupid? <laughs> and, you know, on the most serious note, Edgar tries to explain to Harry why he it was the leaker. And Edgar got over his skis financially. And remember, I said in an earlier podcast, and I said any criminal, but anyone who compromise, wants to compromise you, they got you by the short hairs. And I know things seem bad at the time where you're contemplating crossing that line. But again, I think we've talked about it with Klesko Moore. Once you cross that line, you can't cross it. You can't cross back. And here you see Edgar being played by Honey Chandler. He goes into a long dissertation about his real estate business, things in the tank. He's two payments behind on his mortgage. And then Bosch and Edgar go and have a really row, again, from the book. Harry, don't call me that. Don't you ever call me Harry again. Understand? You want to talk to me? Call me Bosch. That's what people who aren't my friends call me. The people I don't trust. Call me that. Boy, oh boy. <sighs> I mean, even Bosch says in this particular dialogue between him and Edgar that he noticed Edgar a remorse. Now, was it the remorse of lo- losing his friend or was it remorse from being caught? Did anyone pick up with Michael Conley? <laughs> the songs that were playing in the background when Edgar and Bosch were having this conversation One Blood Count, Lush Life, and <laughs> Summer Winds, and The Rain Check. I mean, I, I, you know, as I was preparing for this particular podcast, I listened to those songs and it just set the mode for this particular interaction between Harry and Edgar. I don't believe Michael Conley put that in the book by chance, a happenstance. I think he wants to set the mode in a different way and express it through music. And I, again, I, at least I took it that way. And then Bosch makes Edgar pay a price. Bosch says to Edgar, aren't you going to worry about what I do? Aren't you worried about me, what I'm going to do? Edgar says, yeah, what are you going to do? And pretty much, Bosch says nothing. It's go, what you're going to do. You're going to leave Hollywood. And did, you, did you guys pick up that this is the third book 
in which Bosch threatens to go to ID or something like that. First, he he threatened Wish that she, he was going to go to to Tron. Then he re uh, or Tran Tron. Then he um, threatens Rickard, you know, concerning Curwood. Now Edgar, he's go, he's threatening Edgar that he's going to go to um to ID. And I kind of harken back to what Rickard said. He goes, uh uh-uh, uh, a guy like you. I don't see you going to, you're not going to the IED type. <laughs> but, you know, again, this is the third book in which Bosch holds over some law enforcement head to say, hey, look, you do the right thing. Or I'm going to hold you accountable. And <laughs> I don't know. I just, I just picked up on that. But then Edgar, as he stands up to leave, he tells Harry, one time you're going to need a friend and you remember doing this to me. But Bosch says, I know, which means he understands in the law enforcement world and in investigators, you need friends. And the, what got, what just transpired would probably never get out. But for the department and the Harry Bosch haters, knowing something happened between him and Edgar is going to get out. And that's just one less friend that Harry will need. Again, that's no spoilers, but any cop, you're going to need friends in the department. Something's going to happen and you're going to need people to back you up. You're going to need co-workers and friends to back you up. And Harry understands what he's losing here is someone like Edgar. And so when Bosch is leaving the bar, um, well, Bremer was already in the bar. And Bremer sees Bosch, and he uh, offers Bosch a ride back to um, Parker Center. And Bosch and Bremer have this conversation because Bremer's concerned. Like, Harry, look, you're not going to hold any grudges because I got to write what happened in court today. You're not going to hold any grudges. And Harry says, look, it all comes out in the wash. It comes even. Just tell the story where it is. I'm not going to hold any grudges, and everything's fine. And then as we end this particular, these four uh, chapters, one of the last things that Bremer tells Bosch is, hey, look, if you think it was Edgar or, or Pounds, who's my source of information, is neither one of those guys. So if whatever beef you have with those guys, it's not, it's not because they're my source. And you would never guess who the, uh, my source of information is. Gets us to this episode's Everyone Counts or No One Counts. And for chapters 17 through 20 of The Concrete Blonde, by Everyone Counts or No One Counts person and or moment is Chief Irving in the moment of reassembling the Dollmaker Task Force. Chief Irving here exemplifies what me 
And I'm pretty sure anyone who listens to my podcast who are law enforcement and any law enforcement exemplifies. This is what a true commander is. And what I like about with Chief Irving, we've already seen him as being Harry's nemesis, as a person who wants to control everything. But as he says here in these chapters, he thinks he's a good manager. I think he is. Now, sometimes I disagree with the manner in which he manages, but that's his prerogative. He is a chief. But right here, when it shows that he is reassembling this task force and the fact that he tells the collective, and I said it earlier during this podcast, look, I'm not a detective. That's your, that's your guy's job. Do your job. My job as a manager is to culminate and give you the tools to do your job. And anyone who's a manager, be this way. Be this type of commander. Not afraid, forceful, but also listening to your personnel. You assemble the best and let the people who you assemble do their job. So my everyone counsel, don't one counsel person for chapters 17 through 20 of The Concrete Blonde is Chief Irvin Irving. Well, this concludes this chapter summary of The Concrete Blonde. Wow, everyone, this was, to me, one of the better episodes when it comes to content. And everyone, thanks again for being a part of this podcast. And please continue to let your friends and family know about the podcast so we can continue to grow. We're growing, and it's all because of you. And I really want to say thank you so, so, so much. As always, you can find the podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, YouTube. I put it out there for everyone. So there's a multitude of ways so you can listen to the podcast. And don't forget to give us five stars or better when you're there. And as always, please continue to leave your comments and or suggestions. I like the feedback. I welcome the feedback. So please continue to participate. Also, don't forget to join us at www.thethinbluelinepod.com for more investigative content. So next up on the Thin Blue Line podcast, we will continue our deep dive into the Concrete Blonde, chapters 21 through 24. I'm Phil Parker, and I'm 107 for the remainder. 